Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, we talk about the Netflix true crime series, Making a Murderer. The ethics of the journalism involved, the uh, guilt or innocence of the defendants. It's a fascinating talk. And Phil Zuckerman is here to discuss Living the Secular Life, which coincidentally is the name of his new book. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the fiction editor at LARB, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hello, Seth. And he's the founding editor of LARB, author, professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Seth, I'm so happy to be here. Making a Murderer is a new 10-part documentary series on Netflix that everyone is talking about. It is the story of Stephen Avery, who in 1985 was convicted of assault and rape. He served 18 years in a Wisconsin prison. Around the middle of his time in jail, someone else confessed to the crime. Avery served another eight years after that before he was exonerated. He sued the county for wrongful imprisonment for tens of millions of dollars. Soon after that, a woman disappeared. She was found murdered. The local police accused Stephen Avery. He was brought up on murder charges and the documentary is fascinating. We couldn't stop watching the three of us. Lori, does it effectively tell his story, or is it more complicated than that? It's much more complicated than that. And what do you mean? Well, you get the feeling that the evidence that you're being shown is not all of the evidence. And of course, that does turn out to be the case. Most people who watch it immediately start Googling the case, and you can find out all kinds of outside information. As the New Yorker said in a fabulous piece, um, it was a very one-sided documentary. They went into it with a point of view, and they followed through on that point of view. They, it wasn't like Serial, where Sarah Koenig expresses her doubts. And, and this was a documentary that set out to prove that, not that he was innocent, but that he had a, his, tri- his trial was unfair. They did yeah, prove it's that. A, it's set out, yeah, it set out to indict the system the justice system, and it did a great job of it. Something like 400 hours of material were shot. It's a 10-hour mm-hmm. documentary. Right. What are what are the moral responsibilities of the filmmakers in this situation? And we should say that the film was directed by Laura Ricciardi and Moira, Moira Demos. What what are their moral responsibilities? I, I know that a lot of people have brought up the coverage they had, right? The 400 hours of I mean, they are they're doing some of this filming in real time as as events are uh, unwinding. They don't know what they're going to use and what they're not. There's no responsibility that's related to the percentage of coverage that you make your final no, show. No, I'm not asking for numbers, yeah. but for for example, there there were certain things that were left out that yes. were that were inculpatory that that pointed to Avery's guilt. Clearly an editorial decision was made to leave them out. Why why did they run from the complexity? A two-part question. Why did they run from the complexity and are they responsible? in a way for for showing it or is this just pure advocacy and does that does that devalue it you know it's i think it's very it's a very complicated case in a lot of ways and i think that if you look at you know like let's talk about the iraq war if you do a a documentary about how we were snookered into the war in iraq do you say well Colin Powell seems like a really honest person, and he said that there was yellow cake uranium there. I mean, you, you don't you don't have to spend a lot of time on exculpatory evidence that you think is 
completely groundless. So I'm not sure, you know, even though the, the, the journalistic discussion of this has focused on a lot of the stuff that seems like it might be exculpatory evidence, they spent thousands of hours on this case. And this is how they ended up deciding the truth of the case could be best expressed. So I don't. I think that they're, I, they're living up I, to their responsibility. I don't responsibility. agree entirely. I think this is a, a, an unbelievably fascinating portrait of class in America and the flaws in the justice system. But and, yes, and how fucked you are if you're poor. Well, that's, yes, that's, absolutely. Is isn't the point then that they chose to advocate for reform, reformation of the justice system? And in a sense, a search for truth became a casualty. I think that's that's well is that, put. Is that fair? I don't I don't know whether that's fair or not. I mean, I, I do like Catherine Schultz's argument, which is that um, you're less convincing if you don't seem to be entertaining the opposite uh, hypotheses, uh, and that and there and therefore there it's not as effective a show as it might have been. It doesn't mean that uh, that kind of coming to conclusions before you tell your narrative is not necessary to tell a narrative. I mean, they're, they're telling a story and the story and, to, and once you tell a story, you're heading towards the moral of that story. That's the nature of things. If you want, you want your moral of the story to be is that, well, we don't really know and we'll never know. That's one moral of the story, but that's not what they wanted to tell. The most shocking for me, the most shocking thing in the documentary was uh, something said by the investigator hired by the lawyer who was defending the nephew. Uh, he, said in an email, you know, this family is evil incarnate. They have sex with their sisters. They have sex with their nieces. Um, they, every single one of them is evil to the root. And we have to clear out this gene pool and get rid of them. And aside from the fact that this is a guy that was hired to serve the defendant, um, it was such a bald expression of the kind of, um, not racism, but classism. Cla Class-based loathing yeah, you know, that victimized that, this family. That uh, it was just so shockingly bald that... Yeah. Um, How do you feel about consuming somebody's personal tragedy for entertainment? Yeah, I have no problem with that. Because, but just because I'm a narrative junkie and I'm I'm interested in all narratives and how they're told and I'm interested in information and getting out there and I want to know like when I'm on a jury and they tell you not to Google the case I the first thing I will do is Google the case I feel like it's my right uh, to have all the information because we live in the world and this is one of the stories of the world I have no guilt about it bad juror Tom what is the Laurie <laughs> Weiner story what how about you did you feel, did you feel queasy at all? I, I I didn't feel queasy I I because I I don't I didn't see it as entertainment. I, I, I think that there's to to kind of belittle it by calling it entertainment doesn't I don't see the value of that. But it's absolutely entertainment. It's on Netflix. It's that that, that defines it as entertainment essentially. All documentaries are therefore entertainment. On some level, yeah. If they're on Netflix, yeah, yeah. I you know I understand that. I, I get that argument. But I think that the you know I don't believe that novels are just entertainment. I don't think Shakespeare is just entertainment. I'm not denigrating it by yeah. saying it's entertainment. Oh, I thought. But you what were. I mean is, no, I'm not, I'm not using it as a pejorative. What I mean is putting it there for our delectation. But but well, it's a and or our edification. And our edification, yeah. But let, let me let me ask another, go a little deeper into that question. One of the things that made me, and I was I was comfortable enough to devour it. I should say I'm I'm certainly not taking a position of moral superiority. I'm sure I'm lower than the both of you on that level. But the, the lower than the Averys. But, <laughs> but the fact that it was it was 
these poor people being trotted out for essentially, I'm going to use this word again, the delectation of the NPR crowd is, is a little bit uncomfortable making, I think. I, I'm sure you're right. I don't feel it. Um, I think, you know, even if you want to call it entertainment, you know, entertainment is one of the ways we figure out the world around us. And that's, I feel like that's our jobs to do. And, uh, yeah, I, and I never I know, got tired of doing it. Exactly. I know exactly what you mean because I felt that way about Grey Gardens. Hmm. Like I watched, I watched that and I thought, ah, oh, this is creepy. This is creepy to let, let these, let these women kind of display trotting out their pathologies yeah, for exactly, entertainment exactly and, and i and i didn't and because i didn't see what the what the edification i was supposed to get from it was this story the avery story is a story about the the way um the way the system serves the well-to-do and and screws the the poor and so i that's that's a that's an important fact of our of our life of our time of our justice system and uh and to the extent that that helps it, this this documentary helps expose that. I think it's all to the good. Mm-hmm. Did making a murderer convince you that Stephen Avery did not commit that crime? No. Yes. Oh, <laughs> mom and dad are fighting. Lori, go ahead. Oh, I, you know, look, when Serial was going on and everybody was arguing about it, the thing is, I feel if you look at any murder trial under a microscope, you are going to find all kinds of impurities and probably enough to uh, no one should ever been be convicted of of anything because you can you can find a reasonable doubt in every case. And these cases where the spotlights are shined on them, you you do see that. But as someone said on Reddit about serial, you know. Adnan said he she broke up with him. He told a friend he was going to kill her. He went to Jay for help because Jay was his drug dealer. Jay helped because he gave him money to help. Jay told someone. The police called Jay and then blah, blah, blah. It's so simple. You guys are spending 50 hours going over this case. It It happened exactly the way the jury decided it happened. And I felt that way about Stephen Avery too. Not the, obviously not the rape case, but the, the murder case. I mean, the, he, she, he was the last person the woman saw. Um, you know, he's clearly a psycho. <laughs> uh, <laughs> P.S. Burning the cat alive. <laughs> I mean, oh, who hasn't I wanted think, to do that? I think the guy did it. I don't think they got the right story of how it happened because nobody told the truth about that. But they found her bones in his front yard, et cetera. And I think actually the jury system kind of worked in both cases in a way. Tom, what do you think? <laughs> again, you know, it's it's interesting that um, uh, Catherine Schultz, again, one of part of her argument is that- In the, in the New Yorker. In the New Yorker, yeah. That if he did kill- this woman, we can blame part of it on the, the on the system that set sent him to jail for eighteen years for a crime that he did not commit. By the way, he maintained his innocence through that whole eighteen years, and one of the reasons he was in for eighteen years for assault and rape was because he refused to admit that he did it because he said I didn't do it. And he, you know he's not the brightest bulb. There's no question. And and the fact that he couldn't couldn't see his own self interest in getting out of prison enough to just say yeah okay I did it and get out I just I don't I don't I don't find a clear and convincing evidence at all that he did the prosecution did not convince me that he was guilty uh, you should watch decide for yourself it's called making a murderer it's on Netflix check it out 
I'm Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner here on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 FM, KPFK. Bruce Bauman was wandering past the LARB offices. You might remember him from the interview we did recently. His new novel is called Broken Sleep, and we dragooned him in to recommend some books. Bruce, go. Uh, three books that, for me, go together that I would recommend are, and I like to call it my um, Digestive Track Trilogy, <laughs> and it is Hunger by Newt Homsen, A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka, and Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> Excellent. A, fi- a philosophical and a foodie trilogy of the early part of the sen- last century. Wasn't Newt Hampson a Nazi? Yes. Newt Hampson. Th- th- an active Nazi? An active Nazi. Um, Newt Hampson was an active Nazi. When Hitler uh, went to Norway, I think it was in 39, Hampson actually gave him a great big hug. And after the war, Hampson was put on trial and he was convicted. For of his, hugging Hitler? Uh, hugging Hitler and giving him a little kiss in the ear. Uh, <laughs> and, and no, for, for uh, embracing Nazi views. There's actually mm-hmm. quite a good movie made, a Norwegian movie about the trial and his relations with his family. And uh, Isaac Singer also wrote a great introduction to an older version of it. Like, you know, how as a Jew can you embrace and think so highly as a writer and uh, of the writer and that and Celine both taught me that I could really love these writers who um, would have gracefully put me on the train to Dachau. (laughs) How do you feel about uh, Wagner? Well, I don't like his music, so fuck him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What What do you think about Heidegger? Another one. I mean, is he- there are so many now. I mean, Heidegger is obviously that. By the way, just, just as an aside, because you thought of Heidegger and the Nazi, do you know that in my book, Laban Lively, is an anagram of Evilly Banal? Ah. Not to Hannah. Now, these, these, these three books, uh, they, they actually do go together? Yes, they do. And in what way? Well, stylistically... Kafka was very influenced by Homsen. You can read in the diaries he talks about mm-hmm, Homsen a lot. Yeah. And and the protagonists, I think, in all three are bonkers. Um, the nameless protagonist in Hunger is is clearly Waka Waka Do. And a hunger artist, the guy, you know, performs in a kind of circus atmosphere and right. stars himself for 40 days and 40 nights. That's he's that's his act. It's like He's mad that people go look at the monkeys or whatever. What was his clothes? <laughs> his clothes, he dies. He dies. <laughs> yeah. Like, what a finish. And, 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 and the, but the thing about it is he is purposely, it's, it's, he doesn't eat because he doesn't find any food that he likes. So there's this kind of denial and self-destruct in there. In, in and the, he denies his own heroism uh, in this supposedly right, heroic yeah, act. Yeah. Right. And, and how does nausea fit in? Um, that, that, that's not as direct, but still, I think from me philosophically that, you know, after you haven't eaten for 40 days or you're, you're hungry in a city, what comes next? Nausea, you're sick. And, and all three of the books on a philosophical level, the three characters are sick of society. They can't feed off society. And the end result of that is puking up society. 
Yeah. So, so this was a really, this is a really fun reading syllabus for you all. Yeah. <laughs> to go, to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you have some alcohol by your side. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bruce, for coming in. You're welcome. I'm Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner here on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 FM, KPFK. Phil Zuckerman is the author of several books. He's a professor of sociology at Pitzer College, where he founded the Department of Secular Studies, which, Tom and Lori, the first one in the nation. It's amazing. He is the author of several books. His latest one, Living the Secular Life, is now out in paperback. He's here to tell us how to light the candles on the Sabbath of nothingness. <laughs> Welcome, Phil Zuckerman, to the LARB Radio Hour. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank, thanks nothing for having me here. <laughs> so so there, there's an obvious association of secularity with nothingness, or maybe it's not so obvious, but it's obvious to me. When you hear that, how do you push back? The truth is, on some level, to be secular, yes, it, it's an absence of something. I am lacking a yarmulke right now. I am not wearing any sacred Mormon undergarments at the moment. Are um, you sure? <laughs> I am yeah, sure. I wish I, w- I was. It was cold out there on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Although, oddly, you do have a Pope hat on your head. <laughs> I don't. Uh, you weren't supposed to mention that. Um, and, you know, there, y- yes, I... I'm lacking, you know, I didn't, I'm not praying five times today towards Mecca. So are there many things that I, I don't have? On the other hand, being secular uh, shouldn't, I don't think, shouldn't be conceived of as just a lack or an absence of something. There are actually aspects to my life right now that I attribute to my secularity. Choices I make, uh, how I'm raising my kids, how I understand morality, how I interpret the news as I'm driving out here on the radio. Um, do you I guess, go to temple? Do you, or does I anyone in your to. family? I used to, and I just can't do it anymore. The the, the problem was I learned Hebrew. <laughs> so when you don't know what you're saying, it's a great actual incantation. Uh, we used to go to synagogue. I mean, I'm a I'm a third generation non-believer, so this is you know all four of my grandparents were non-believers. But you know to be part of the Jewish community, we 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 did go to synagogue when I was growing up. It was a reconstructionist synagogue in the Palisades. But as I get older and had my own kids, I've got three. Uh, you know, when certain high holidays would roll around, I felt like it was important to to recognize those. Um, Unfortunately, I lived in Israel for a year, and I learned Hebrew, and I learned what I was actually saying. And when you actually learn the words, I I couldn't stomach it. And and what happened was, I was doing what most secular Jews will do, which is just kind of like, ah, go through it anyway. You know, plug your nose. Who cares about the words? It's all about community. It's all about ritual. It's all about... and, And I get that. I don't care if other Jews do that. But when I was taking my children there, and and I was they were starting to say some of the prayers in English, it was like... I just don't believe this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's it, not only do I not believe it, I find that kind of, it's hostile to my sense of on, intellectual integrity, yeah. honesty. Oh, like, it's, right. I'll, I'll just give you one last example. So I have students every year that take off for Yom Kippur and I, and they're all, yeah, they all, they're all sitting secular and I say, oh, so you're going to go to synagogue? Oh yeah, we go to synagogue. And I go, you do know what you're saying on Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the year. And they said, well, you know, I think so. I go, you do know you're advocating killing of gays and lesbians because Leviticus in 18 through 22 is the heart of the Yom Kippur service, you know, and they're kind of like flabbergasted. They can't believe it. And like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be too much of a right. uh, jerk. But, but I just want them to know. But that- what about waking up every day and thanking God you're not a woman? That's oh, charming. Man. But, oh, man. but you know, you know that uh, car- it's not cartoon. It's like a postcard. It's a little girl in church, and she's got her white gloves and her black patent leather. She's very properly dressed, and uh, she's in church. And the thought bubble says, "What if it's all bullshit?" <laughs> 
And I feel like the three of us were all like that, right? When we were that kid, when we were growing up. When I when I found out about doubting Thomas, I th- I thought, oh, yep, that, that makes sense. <laughs> He's your saint. <laughs> now, my parents were not secular exactly, but I grew up in a time when everyone sent their kids to Hebrew school because the hol- they had to learn about the Holocaust. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And everyone had to learn about it, and they had to see the films. Sure. And that was such a huge part of the community building. And I don't even think it really had to do with God. It was just like, you have to know what is out in the world, and you need a community to deal with this. Absolutely. But that was a long time ago. Yeah. I don't know if that's still the cement of Hebrew school. What about you, Seth? Well, I think the post-World War II Jewish experience was very much about the rebuilding of the shattered community that had occurred in Europe. So that drove everything. I mean, I, I didn't go to Hebrew school, but you know, my family identified You didn't as, get bar mitzvah? No. You and Tom were uh, alluding to your work uh, in starting the first Department of Secular Studies. What exactly is that? Okay, thank you for that question. I love it. I gotta, I gotta answer it more and more so I can get the word out. Um, basically, we've been studying every aspect of religious life for since the. Su- 150 years. I mean, anthropology began as the study of religious behaviors of, 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 of people from other parts of the world, um, uh, philosophy, psychology, uh, William James, even sociology with Max Weber and Durkheim. I mean, religion was central. So we have been studying every aspect of religious life, from religious drumming to religious belief to religious congregating, you name it. But the fact is, there are hundreds of millions of people who are not religious on planet Earth right right now. Just the United States, it's around 58 million people saying they have no religion. They don't want to even identify with a religion, right? And so, and that's been going up and up and up. So back in the 50s, about 4% of Americans when asked, what is their religion, said none, N-O-N-E. And then it went up to about 8% in the ni- 1990. Now it's at about 28, 29%. So a third of Americans and 35% of millennials. So right there again, that's about 58 million Americans if you go globally, it's hundreds of millions of people. We, we now have some societies where there are more non-believers than believers. The Netherlands, Estonia, for example, uh, Japan. Um, so if we have hundreds of millions of humans who, don't live, who, who live without it, how are they living their lives? So secular studies takes secularity seriously and says, well, we want to understand secular people, secular culture, past and present. You know, I'm finding more and more evidence of non-belief, non-affiliation hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. The ancient Charvaka of India were the sort of, we have evidence about people who rejected all religious beliefs, all of Hinduism's, uh, you know, the Brahmins and and karma. So, um, so in a nutshell, from a sort of sociological perspective, secular studies is sort of like, who are secular people? What do we know about them? Anthropologically, how do secular people, uh, what is secular culture all about? Psychologically, what do we know about the brains and neurons and personalities and emotions of secular people? Historically, evidence and, and political science, you know, church state issues, secularism as a political force from France to Turkey to so. I'm going to go back to the book for just a second. I read something in your book that surprised me, which is that eight or 10 state uh, constitutions um forbid atheists from holding office and how is that possible given uh our federal constitution. <laughs> yes, it, it, people are. I used that when I was recently at Georgetown University on some panel about religious freedom, and they were talking about how the rights of the religious are being trampled upon, and the secular c- 
country is destroying the right. You know, I'm, I, I just kept scratching my head. I said, so I brought that out that there are several states, many states in this country, uh, that on their state constitutions bar any non-believer in God from holding any public office, mayor on up. And um, the only so th- we all know that those are unconstitutional, but they can only be shown to be constitutional if they're challenged, and it goes to the Supreme Court. And as a yet, no one has challenged him that far. But that tells you something that no state politician uh, has has put that on their agenda. And, and there's just no question that um, that atheists in this country are, we have so many surveys uh, showing that they're the least trusted, the least liked of any minority group, including racial minorities, religious but minorities. But the most attractive. I think so. Thank you. I wasn't going to say, <laughs> but it is a radio show and, and they can't see. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. Um, in fact, I thought Barney Frank is, I always bring out Barney Frank, is here's a guy who comes out as gay or gay in the 80s. In the 80s. I mean, come on, talk about, so way before what, all the kind of rights we've seen uh, won in the last few years, but would not come out as an atheist ever until he retired. I mean, that, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not saying, I, you know, in my opinion, oh, gays no, and lesbians have, is far, have, have experienced far more persecution and violence and hatred than atheists, to be sure. But it tells you something about the political climate of this culture, that he could come out in the 80s as gay and still have a successful political career. And he was asked about that. And he said, if I had come out as atheist, my political career, no one would take anything out of my mouth as seriously after that. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned that Estonia, uh, 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 Norway, and another country were the most secular. What was the third? Yeah, the most secular would be Scandinavia, Estonia, the Netherlands Uh now has more has more non-believers and believers. Japan has a high rate of secularity. So, do we learn anything about tangible life in these societies without? Well, one of the nice things about secular studies is we're actually now making these kind of purposeful comparisons. So we can look at secular people in certain countries and compare them to more religious people in more religious countries. We can also do it here in the United States. We can look at secular lives and compare them to religious lives. Um, in many instances, there are really positive uh, outcomes. In other case places, religious people actually fare better. It depends what measure you're looking at. Um, like what kind of measures? Okay, I'll give you an example. Um, hitting your own kids is highly correlated with religiosity. So the I more religious that you in my are, yes. <laughs> there you go. And then, and then you know, then moderately religious people, the rate goes down. But secular people are the least likely to hit their kids or support corporal punishment of any kind. So there's that's just an example of when we compare. And so their kids are running wild. <laughs> oh yeah, it's absolutely. Terrible. As yeah, valedictorians, that's, what, that's the point, right? Uh, that, was in, the, that was the bad. No, no, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> so on on the other end of the scale. Uh-huh. So what we found is people, excuse me, who are religiously affiliated uh, have higher levels of subjective well-being. So it seems that being part of a religious community is good for your emotions. You're, they have lower rates of depression. Uh, they even tend to live longer. So, and it's and it's the affiliation that does it, not the belief. In fact, mm-hmm. you can measure um, atheists who are still involved in religious communities for whatever reason, usually of a spouse, have the same levels of subjective well-being as as believing affiliates. And theists, people who believe but don't want to set foot in a church, have the lower levels of well-being. So there's something about mm-hmm. coming together with people that is beneficial. Well, Phil Zuckerman, thanks for coming in and talking to the Laura Brie. Oh, man, thank you. That was so much fun. The book is Living the Secular Life. It's out in paperback now. Phil, thanks for coming in. Thanks to Bruce Bauman. Thanks to Phil Zuckerman. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. Sid Biggs has resigned. 
The irreplaceable Sid Biggs, it turns out he's replaceable. Uh, this makes us all so sad. But we wish him well in his in his new endeavors. What is he going to be doing, Seth? He is uh, taking a job as a tennis pro on a cruise ship. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Gold Hirsch Foundation, and this is a good time to thank them. Before we go, here's another podcast you might like. Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. They call it Progressive News Without the Boring Parts. Every week, the host, John Wiener, takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk with some really smart people like Naomi Klein on climate change, Barbara Ehrenreich on working class life, and Dave Zirin on the trouble with football. Start Making Sense is posted every Thursday at thenation.com and at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tom and Lori, I know you'll be listening. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week.